0: Good morning, my friends. It's at this time of the service I'd like to invite you to yet again consider the gospel and orient your lives around it. This is a great opportunity that we have to study together, but more than that, this is a, it's a place for mobilization. It's a place for us to evaluate ourselves and our situation and to figure out how, how we can get closer and closer uh, to Jesus and how our lives can honor him more and more. Each Sunday, we like to take time out of our service to study the Bible together, but also to uh, orient ourselves around the Messiah. As a community, we've decided to study the final book of the Bible uh, in the order that we have it, which is called the Revelation. So if you uh, would like to turn there at this time, if you don't have a Bible, um, Pastor Rod has three that he can hand out, <laughs> <laughs> and Mr. Tages has some as well, um, it is the last book of the Bible, as I said, and it is on page, there is no page number <coughs> for this, it's just two title pages, so just, fight. you're on your own, every man for himself. <laughs> Revelation chapter 1, we started our study last week, uh, and I'll be reading the, the, the second half here, starting in verse 9. While you're turning there, I'd like to remind you that we stand for the reading of God's word here as a gesture of, of, of honor, because we believe that if we honor God's word in small, simple ways, then we also will honor, are more likely to honor God in the larger ways of our life. If you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much. That being said, if you're unable to stand, <coughs> that's okay too. I just uh, want to encourage you to think of a way that uh, you in your individual way can honor the, t- the time of the reading as well. Maybe that's raising an arm or a hand or, or, or something like that. It's, it's up to you. But for those of you who can't stand, I'd like to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and in kingdom I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow. And his eyes were blazing like fire. His feet we like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing water. In his right hand, he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what is yet to take place. And the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's the very word of God. Please have a seat. Just like to take a temperature. Um, how, are, uh, how do you feel about us studying the book of the Revelation? Okay. Definitely some excitement and energy there. I'm not sure where that's coming from. I, I hope it's a good place. Growing up and spending time around the Bible... This book doesn't have like that many really positive memories for me. And so my excitement is coming from hopefully uh, this next season becomes actually a positive memory for us and something that we uh, can really look back on and enjoy. For example, there was this song that my brothers and I used to love growing up that was like two men walking up a hill, one disappears. And one left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. I don't know if anyone's ever heard that. It's kind of an old song. <laughs> but my brother, one of my brothers, and I used to share a bedroom, and I constantly was—I mean, periodically—thinking there is a verse that says, "A man and wife asleep in bed, one disappears and turns their head. He's gone." And I was thinking maybe one of us is going to disappear. I'm constantly at waking him up and think, "Are you still here?" And And then there was always kind of an argument about which is better, to disappear or not. Because we also didn't really know where the disappeared people went. And I wish we'd all been ready. It was just sort of something that created a little bit of tension uh, in our family. Um... And so I just was thinking, I am so excited to read this now and to be studying it with a different set of eyes and a humble heart because the more I study this book now, the more I see that this was written not as a crystal ball, not as something that was meant to create people to feel afraid and uneasy, but this was written as a letter to be massively encouraging. And I'd like that to to also as we teach this and study this together to receive that same encouragement because this was written to a group of people who were constantly having to make difficult decisions and choices living in a very hard time as a, as an encouragement to them to cause them to feel more secure and more than ever passionate about following Jesus and loving Jesus with their entire lives It's timely for us to be reading this indeed. So this morning, I'd like to walk through these verses and point out some things that I find really encouraging. The first thing that I see that's really encouraging in this introduction here is the shared suffering. Look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and in the kingdom and in patient endurance that are ours, in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos. Quite the introduction. John could have said anything he wanted to introduce himself. He's got lots of options. I, John, a disciple of Jesus. Maybe you've heard of me. Paul wrote in Galatians that I am one of the pillars of the church. That's something to write on a resume. Why didn't he say, I, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved? Why didn't he say, I am a witness to the transfiguration? Or my favorite, I, John, one of the sons of thunder. (laughs) That's a nickname that definitely would be great for a rock band. (laughs) Instead, he chooses to say, I, John, a brother and a partner in your suffering. What kind of suffering could one of the apostles experience? I don't know about you, but I've, I guess through uh, just different flannel graph worldview, uh, you know, in my childhood that the apostles were kind of like superheroes to me. I mean, they were given special powers. They were given special situations. They never made the wrong choice. They were always kind of uh, just different than the rest of us. Come to find out that, that, like Rod said last week, the church tradition holds that all of them, except John and Judas, were killed, were murdered. That's different. Uh, Those are the people that that we're following. That's different than these elite group of people that wear some Holy Spirit hazmat suit and, you know, are never affected by pain or anything in this life. That never have a mundane moment like the rest of us. John chooses to say, I'm your brother, and I'm a partner in suffering. A specific kind of suffering that John is experiencing here is something that I think that a lot of us can actually also identify with. I am on the island of Patmos. Okay, so if you don't know what the island of Patmos is, you may be thinking right now, I'd like to get in trouble for Jesus and be on some Mediterranean island for the rest of my life. That's not so bad. But that's kind of, that, this isn't like Cozumel. Okay, this isn't like a vacation destination, right? This is like, have you read the Count of Monte Cristo? What happens in your heart when I say the Chateau d'If? Chelsea and I, two weeks ago, were in San Francisco. And we're looking out in the bay. And we see the island of Alcatraz. Federal prison. This is Patmos. When you hear, I am on Patmos, I am on Alcatraz. Not because John committed murder. Not because he was a danger to society. But because he made a difficult decision. Following Jesus is going to lead, if if you've been following him for any length of time, you'll know this, to a series of difficult decisions. Jesus is constantly drawing us outside of our comfort zone. Constantly drawing us forward and putting us in situations where we have to make a decision that might have some relational fallout, especially here. Maybe we're not making decisions that will cause us to be crucified yet, or maybe we're not making decisions that put us in jail right now, but we do know, I'm sure you do, decisions that you make based on your faith that could have some major relational fallout or could have uh, your reputation would be at stake. For me, something that I, that, I, that I wrestle with a lot are these decisions that we have uh, that affect each other. That oftentimes, in at least nowadays, there just isn't a Bible verse for that one. You know, I mean, does anyone share that? There there are situations that we're in where, it, you know, it could go either way. We have these really strong Biblical convictions that are welling up inside of us and Holy Spirit is working on us to become more and more obedient to that. But then also we live in a really complicated world where we have relationships all around us and people are making decisions that life choices that we might definitely not do based on our convictions. Well, what do you do? I mean, do you do you stand up and speak speak out every time? Surely sometimes. But, I mean, we follow Jesus, who was definitely in situations that uh, were flexible with the people around him's life choices were being made. I mean, he was constantly being confused for a sinner or somebody that was associated with sinners. So, obviously, he didn't take the time every time to say, Just so that you know, I don't believe what they believe. I'm just sort of hanging out with them. Uh, I just... (laughs) I just want to make it clear, I mean, there, is these, there are these moments where it could go either way. Maybe we play the long game with people and we just love them by being there instead of sharing our opinion every time. And you know that that situation sometimes comes with this looming thought in the back of my mind, am I doing the right thing right now? Especially if one of those decisions means some major relational fallout. Am I doing the right thing right now? So so John's faced with decisions, and the people that he's writing to are faced with decisions. Much of them are to do with things that are actually life and death. Getting into the culture a little bit, let me explain. The fastest growing, most trendy religion of the day was emperor worship. Emperor worship was such a big deal because it was mostly the glue that held together many pieces of society for them. So uh, let me break it down. In order to worship an emperor, you have to have a temple. Well, you'd like a temple anyways. And all of the cities would like to have the temple in their city. So there's a constant kind of uh, race to who can be approved to get this nice new temple. Because that's going to create jobs to build the temple jobs to staff the temple. It's also going to create space for different farmers and uh, people to bring culti- uh, ritual crops to and ritual sacrifice of livestock to. So they're going to create their own guilds around this place. It's a place that you can also go and, and it's having a lot of money come through there. It becomes like the bank, You can take loans from the temple. You can uh, give to it and invest in it. You can uh, get mortgages out of the temple. It's uh, a wealthy situation. Each of the cities, of these seven cities, either has a temple built to a Caesar, or has an altar built to a Caesar in some shared space, or has a full-time priest that is there to facilitate sacrifices on account of the Caesar. Now, maybe in your mind you think, okay, so that's sort of happening, but we believe in separation of church and state, right? Well, this is not even on the radar for them. As a matter of fact, the more uh, church and state that's mixed together, the better. I mean, after all, we're worshiping the emperor. So each year, several times a year, there'd be days that you could, uh, that were mandatory to celebrate the divinity of the emperor, And they would have different rituals and different practices based on where they are and what they're doing. But they would always have one thing. Some sort of demonstration of loyalty. Some sort of acknowledgement to the divinity of the emperor. Oftentimes, if you didn't do that, or or oftentimes if you did do that, you would get some sort of uh, mark on you uh, of ashes or something placed on your hand or your head that would signify that you were uh, a part of this. Sometimes if you didn't have that, then this would create kind of a threat. I mean, imagine if you're at the Tigers right now, uh, baseball game, and you are standing for the national anthem. And then there's this guy sitting in the row in front of you who is on his cell phone checking Instagram. You know, there's somewhat, there's no law, I guess, uh, that you have to stand. But there's something in you that's like, come on, man. I mean, don't you care about what we're, you know, what we're standing for here? I mean, there's some cultural norm even now. But imagine being in a day where acknowledging this emperor as divine is actually synonymous with um, supporting our entire cultural way of life, or supporting our economic system. And to not do that is to threaten that system. To not do that will put you in a place of life or death. So it's not hard to see. We don't really have the exact scenario of what happened to John, But we do know he made a decision. At some point, perhaps he was at the grocery store, you know, uh, he really likes this certain bakery, and everybody else has this mark on them, but he doesn't have it. They say, you can't buy here unless you see the priest. He goes to see the priest, and, and then this is one of those decisions. I mean... Uh, what is it today? Is it just sort of a tax I have to pay? I mean, is this something that you just sort of like have to go through the motions for in order to exist here? And the priest maybe said, you know, actually there's no tax today. All you have to do is raise your right hand and say, I worship Caesar, my Lord and my God. Can you just see John with all of his Life saying there's one God, and then now, even echoing the words of Paul, we worship one God and one Lord Jesus Christ. And saying to that priest, I can't do that, I believe in the Messiah of the Jew. That's one of those decisions that are difficult, it affects his family. It affects his community. It affects his entire life. Because now he's either going to be killed or he's going to be thrown in jail and charged with atheism. John is writing to people who experience that tension. What do you do when your culture vilifies the Christian what do you do when you're in a situation you know, where you are definitely making a statement that I am a follower of Jesus or not, and it's going to create some fallout? Part of the reason, I think, why we shy away from those situations is because there's a fear inside of us that we are going to be alone. And isn't it encouraging that John is writing, and the very first thing that he says is, you are not alone. You have a brother and you have a partner who knows this pain and is here suffering as well. And I believe that this is legit. Remember what Jesus said. In this world you will have many troubles, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Remember what the author of Hebrews wrote in chapter 2. Isn't it fitting that the author and perfecter of our faith would be made perfect through his suffering? We follow Jesus who suffered, not so that we don't have to, but so that we can finally have this indelible companion in our suffering. You are not alone. You can do it. You can make this choice. You can take a stand for your faith, and you will not be abandoned or forsaken. Look around the room and see your brothers and sisters who also believe that this is worth giving our lives for. Will you receive John's companionship and encouragement? That's the first thing I find encouraging uh, from this passage. The second thing that I see is very encouraging is this overwhelming, um, wonderful uh, experience that that John gets because of Jesus' creative representation. Okay, I say that all very carefully because I think it matters here. See, the next thing we see in verse 10 is John, he says, On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Okay, what does it mean to be in the Spirit? If that caught your attention. At the very least, it means that he was praying. All kinds of different things happen in the Bible when people pray. Okay, but at the very least, let's agree that John was praying and while he was praying, something happened. He was given a very difficult task. I don't know if you catch this. Write down what you see. Okay, that's kind of an interesting way of putting it. It happens two times in this text. Write down what you see. Now, John's really good at writing, <coughs> at writing down what he hears. I mean, that's kind of easy to do, right? I mean, he hears somebody say, I am the Alpha, the Omega. I can write that down, no problem. He's quoting people all the time. But it's another thing entirely to write what you see. And maybe if we think about this, we could give John a little bit of grace when we're reading the book of Revelation because it's not easy to do. For example, has anybody been to Art Prize yet? I brought a couple pictures to illustrate this. Give me one. Here we go. Write down what you see. Well, what I saw definitely looked like a bear. But it's different because it also is full of different colors. And uh, it's dripping with something. And uh, it's looking somewhere. And it, it makes me feel a certain way. Give me another one. It definitely looks like an ox taking a selfie <laughs> in front of a spaceship. <laughs> and it's made of metal, and it's, it's really hard. Okay, well, what I'm trying to say with this is it's difficult to write what you see. It's one thing to write what you hear. And the book of Revelation, we have to understand, is not just simply a transmission of knowledge. Just a, a, you know, a word for a word. The book of Revelation is a drama. There's, it's poetic. There's songs being sung. There's movement happening. There's all kinds of pictures that are being seen. It's very creative. And when you see a picture like these... Uh, It's not meant to just sort of be a depiction of a bear. It's it's more than that. It's meant to be felt. It's meant to move something inside of you. And that's what happens when we see art. That's the beautiful thing about art is is it takes us a place with just one look. Takes us into a deep emotional place. Now, with this vision, there are two things that are described and and interpreted later. And I'll get to that in a second. But there are many people who just break this up and try and, you know, write out a bunch of descriptions of what this means. But I just want to take a second and honor the picture and let it speak for itself. Let's try and feel this. So I want to invite you just to close your eyes, and I'm going to read to you what John saw. And just take a moment of silence and feel it. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. And standing among the lampstands was one who looked like the Son of Man. He was dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with the golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool white as snow. His eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were glowing bronze, like bronze in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing water. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth, came was sharp. Double edged sword. His face was shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. something that a picture does to us deep down, a place that it takes us. It moved John to see. <coughs> and I know that a picture says a thousand words, and I'm not going to say a thousand about that picture, you know. But I do know this. To see that. in comparison to all of the different rulers and kings and people in authority and presidents, in comparison to who Jesus creatively revealed himself as, I will pick him every single time. And in a moment where we might be feeling vulnerable or feeling afraid of what's going to happen, when you look at that, it creates a deep sense of fear and humility. Maybe perhaps you have uh, been studying the Bible for a long time and have really gotten jaded when it comes to who Jesus is to you. And you're, you have no more emotion left. And you feel like it's just a bunch of, of math you know, that we're doing here. Maybe you need to close your eyes and picture this, this son of man And let it bring you down again, down low. And let it create in you a fear and a humility and a reverence for who this is that we're following. I find that extremely encouraging. The last thing I'd like to share with you is the interpretation of uh, the lamp and the stars that we find in verse 20. And I have to acknowledge this because... Very rarely in Revelation do we get a real time interpretation of Saltina, so I'd feel kind of bad if we just skipped the first one. Okay, so uh, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. Why do I find this encouraging? Well, note, uh, it's worth noting here that this word angel can be translated as a divine messenger, but also an earthly messenger. So some scholars have decided to, you know, play around with the idea that these seven stars would represent the seven, like, pastors of these churches. So So the seven stars could be seven angels or seven pastors. Or what I like to think of it as, maybe... You know, the Bible is trying to tell us something here that we should regard pastors as angels. Maybe I should change my title. You know, it's hard to translate, but the angel of the young adults at Crossroads. It just might do something for you that I don't think you should be laughing so hard. Angel or pastor, the messenger is only as good as the message. But what's the message to, that is being sent to the churches is the truth of the gospel. And that confronts a lot of what ifs and a lot of fears that we might have. What if we got this message wrong? What if everybody else is right? What if it changed? What if it's translated wrong? What, do we, what if? The encouragement here is where are the stars? Two times in this text it says it. In the right hand of the Son of Man. Do you know that the Son of Man is holding on to the the messenger and the message of the church? That he is in protection of it. The Son of Man has in his hand the, the message of the gospel. And it is being preached. It has been preached. Christ died. Christ is risen, and Christ is coming again. is being preached, and it is being protected by the Son of Man. And that's encouraging, because you can bank on it. He's not going to let it go. I can't think of a safer place for that to be. The seven lampstands, I also find encouraging as well. Notice, though, not necessarily the lampstands, but where the Son of Man is in relation to them. Back in verse 12. I saw the voice when I turned, I saw seven lampstands, and among them was standing the Son of Man. This verse would make us feel a lot different if we were to see the Son of Man looking through a telescope down to earth, and he could barely make out some some little pithy churches in Turkey or Grand Rapids. But know what it says here the Son of Man is standing among the churches? Do you feel right now that Jesus is is a distant relative or somebody that's just far away in some castle and not really involved in what you're doing, doesn't really know your name, has no clue of the level of health that's in your life or community right now? Know this, that Jesus is standing among us. The gardener is here, and he is trimming off bad branches and speaking life into this vine. The gardener is among us, even now, even speaking healing to the humble or even challenging and convicting the proud. How encouraging is it to know that even in in, in our time or even a more tumultuous time, that we have not been abandoned, but the author and perfect of our faith is standing among us. Now, if, if you um, are, have a fear of a decision that you know that you need to make in the future, or if there's something that you're just sort of unsettled by, I'd like to encourage you um, to, to make a hard choice for the Lord and to know that you're not alone. You know what he wants you to do. Maybe this morning you need to lay that down at his feet and humbly say, I I surrender 100% of my path and my life to you again. I'm not going to hold on to it so tightly anymore. Perhaps you've lost your affection for Jesus, and he's just become sort of a stale statue somewhere in your heart. Come to him, and he will... Reveal himself to you in all of his glory and splendor. And again, breathe life into your, uh, into your heart for him. He will awaken um, affections if you ask him to. And receive the encouraging word that he is involved in what we're doing. And the message of the gospel is just as strong now as it ever has been. Let's take a moment and just pray together some of us lord are just falling flat on our faces in our hearts you know you know mentally before you and i thank you for being so quick to reach down and touch john on the shoulder and not to just leave him sitting there but to say hey don't be afraid i am the first and the last i'm not going anywhere I'm always going to be here. I am in between and before and after everything. Here I am, right with you. I am the living one. Come to me for life. I am the source of life. I am the living one. There's not living two. There's living one. I am the one who brings life. And I'm right next to you. I am the one who died. I'm never, you're never going to forget that that great act of of love for our freedom and for our redemption we thank you for continuing to tell us that you are the one who died and yet you are the one who has conquered death and holds the keys to death and Hades and everything that we're that we're afraid of you you have power and authority over so please come reveal yourself to my Brothers and sisters, how how close are you, how glorious are you, how trustworthy are you? We thank you for speaking to us yet again and We thank you for your word.